Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Justice, a podcast exploring all areas of the justice system. With me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. This week, I look at justice through a literary lens by speaking to Harriet Still, the curator of Thomas Hardy's Wessex exhibition. We explore one of Hardy's most famous works, Tess of the D'Urbervilles, and reflect on how Tess's treatment can speak to the experiences of women today, including those in the justice system. I'm Harriet Still, and I am the Hardy curator for Hardy's Wessex exhibitions which are happening across the Wessex Museum's partnership at the moment until the 30th of October. So can you describe to me who was Thomas Hardy? What type of man was he? Because I'm I'm sure, first of all, lots of um, our listeners will be like, why is Edwina talking about Thomas Hardy? And what on earth has he got to do with justice, actually? So yeah, so tell me a bit about, about the man himself. So Hardy was born in a little thatched cottage three miles outside of Dorchester in Dorset. And his father was a builder and his mum had been a servant until she married his father. And Hardy starts off as a poet, but he turns to writing. And in his mid-30s, his career really takes off and he becomes one of the kind of fathers of English literature. But one of the things that really sticks with me that he says runs through all of his works is this line about what are my works but one plea against inhumanity towards man, woman and lower animals. And so ideal that all his work is in some way trying to fight for one of these causes to speak for people who can't speak for themselves. OK, would you say he was um, a feminist and a sort of early feminist? I know that there are probably other people who have very different ideas on this, but um, for me getting to know him through his his life and also his works, I'd say that he puts across women's points of view at a time when women's rights were really, really restricted. We've still got, uh, when he starts writing this period when women don't have rights over their own children if they're married, they don't have rights over their own property if they're married. And he puts across this idea of women who take control of their property, take control of their finances um, and really kind of have a voice of their own. So he was like an advocate for women yeah. doing that through his writing. And I think it's it's interesting because he was also called on quite a lot later on in his life when he got this fame um, to start publicly speaking for women. And one thing he feels quite strongly is he, he doesn't want to ever be putting himself up and kind of lecturing on behalf of women. He feels that isn't really his place as a man. Um, so he very much sees his novels as that place to be an advocate and to do it in a really subtle way that almost is, is more subtle than lecturing at someone. Because when you 
write, read a book, you kind of are taken on a journey with the author, but almost the author's voice becomes invisible. Right. And you're so immersed in that world. And it's that world that convinces you rather than the voice of the author. Yeah, it's almost like instead of campaigning and being sort of adversarial, maybe, mm. it's a sort of more gentle... Yeah, take someone with you as opposed to trying to change someone's mind. Yeah, that whole, and isn't there that whole thing with kind of sympathy versus empathy and one is walking a mile in someone's shoes and the other one is putting on their socks as well. And that sense of when you read a book, you really are kind of putting on the socks of that character and tramping in their shoes and their socks. Yeah, and I think feeling it, right? Because when you're sort of reading something, you can either feel tearful or scared Mm. or, you know, it's in your head and it's in, you know, it gets you emotionally, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I think... That is something that really hits people with Hardy. You know, I, I get it all the time, people saying, Hardy, so depressing, or, you know, he just is so tragic. I think that's because one of the things that really hits home emotionally is the way that he portrays these characters, and you really do climb inside their skins in a way that I think so many other writers, you kind of, you're still standing looking on at the action, whereas his characters, you really kind of seem to get inside them, which I think is one of the other amazing things is, the way that as a male writer at that time he was able to portray these these female characters that I feel such empathy with. And so we have to take a look at the female influences in his life uh, uh, during that time because obviously you know the women in his life would have had so much um, sort of creative influence over him. So can you tell me a bit about his mother and his sisters? Yes, yeah, so I think they're hugely influential on his early life. Um, his mother had been in service for 13 years by the time that she married his father, um, and she was three months pregnant with Hardy by the time she married his father. Um, and Hardy, some listeners might know, Far from the Matting Crowd, which is one of Hardy's earliest novels. And it talks about this woman who becomes pregnant without being married to the father and ends up dying in a, a workhouse because basically she doesn't have anyone to fight her case for her. And I think Hardy was probably quite aware that actually his mother was in a very similar situation. If his father hadn't done the right thing and married her, she could easily have been there crawling up to a workhouse and you know dying while in labour because she had a horrible birth. Um, the labour was awful and they thought he was dead when um, he was first born. And I think that sense of this precarious situation that women are put in really really kind of stuck with him and that's something that he brings up in his books to kind of represent that to his audience um because uh, you know her family had no money they were on the poor law relief she had no shoes when she was growing up she um you know she really knew what poverty and um and hard hard life was when she's bringing up him and his sisters she says if you can possibly avoid getting married please do <laughs> and so um, he has a younger sister, Mary, who's a year younger than him, and a younger sister, Kate, who's 16 years younger than him. And both of them choose to become teachers um, with a lot of encouragement from his mother. And that means that they have independent income. They um, are able to control their own property. And again, quite rare for that time. Yeah, the, you have a lot of women of that class who are going into teaching at that time. But the I suppose the key thing is that I think a lot of them do get married. And at that period getting married ended your career and they choose not to they stay unmarried and they maintain their property and it means that they they're just able to have that security which his mother was always reliant on his father and I think you know although I think they had a happy marriage at the end of her life she says I've lived my whole life in someone else's house amongst someone else's possessions right clearly she was independent-minded yes and would have really have liked that and wanted that independence and it clearly sat difficultly with her that she never 
achieved it. I think in in another time she would have been running her own business and she would have been um, calling the shots. The world that she was she was born into that just wasn't possible. Yeah. So Hardy did go on to get married, but he but his two sisters didn't. No, and so they both attended teacher training college in Salisbury, and um, and yeah, that that set them up for for what they um, they could do later on in life. And tell me a bit about Hardy's wife, Emma. Yes, so Emma's really interesting. They meet when they're in their thirties down in Cornwall, and she's the sister-in-law of the vicar who's church hardy is working on because hardy first of all trained as a church architect before he went to writing and she's really the one that encourages him in his writing and she edits a lot of his works and she really kind of supports him in making that leap from being a jobbing architect to becoming a full-time writer and they get married four years later when they're both 34 years old so they're quite for that time especially i think they're quite old by the time they get married and i think they both were very um I don't know, feeling um, empathetic people. And she quite often expresses, you see her talking out publicly about things like women's rights. Um, she's very involved in the suffrage movement. And she also, um, things like when the Boer War was going on, she says, you know, we're just doing it for Transvaal diamonds and gold and it's wrong. Whereas Hardy's kind of going, oh, I don't know, I can see kind of multiple sides of it. And it's really the human tragedy that I'm getting at. She's just like, no, it's just wrong. (laughs) And so she's a very, very strong character. And I think they probably had a massive meeting of minds when they were young. And that relationship lasts until her death in 1912. Okay. And it's particularly the story of Tess of the D'Urbervilles for me. And when we discussed this earlier before recording the podcast, some of the synergies really of the battles women were fighting then mm. and how actually Tess is still quite a modern day story alarmingly in many ways mm-hmm. so could you give the listeners a sort of a summary of the story of Tess and and what happens in it no, absolutely um so Tess the D'Urbervilles is written in 1891 and it's more or less set contem- contemporaneous when, when he was writing it and it's the story of um, a teenager who is sent off to try and win back the kind of family fortunes there. They're a family who have always um, been on hard times and yet they find out that they may have this relationship to this wealthy family. And so she goes to work for them, but this throws her into the path of this man, Alec Derberville, who is a kind of, in theory, a distant relative, but so distant it doesn't really join up anymore. And while she's working for him, um, there's this one night when they're coming back from a party and she's so tired that he offers her a lift on his horse and he takes her into the woods. And we, the kind of more or less, as Hardy writes it, there's a blackout at that point. You don't see anything else. You don't really hear anything else. You don't know what's going on. But the sense is that either he has raped her or coerced her into sex and she ends up having a child um, from that. But there is, she wants independence from him completely. She she wants to basically separate herself entirely from what's happened. And um, this kind of, he, he still tries to have this part in her life. And this ends up becoming this abusive situation where she's effectively being held as a, a kind of hostage in Bournemouth. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she eventually tries to escape from that abuse by killing him and by running off with her husband. Um, and so, sorry, that's a huge spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't <laughs> read it. Um, but I promise you, it's it's really, really worth exploring that novel. And because the way that Hardy shows Tess, 
he, so he subtitles it an um, a pure woman. And this caused outrage at the time because how could a woman who has had sex outside of marriage, had a child outside of marriage and then killed a man in any way be pure? But he says, no, she, she still is pure in spite of all of this. And it's actually society that is wrong and is broken and has not supported her. And, and so she's still a good woman and can be a kind woman. Yes. And that's what makes her pure, actually. Not the things that have been done to her by an unscrupulous man. No. And yes, that, that whole thing of, of victim blaming, I think, mm. as well, is so mm. strong in this period. And that's yeah. the thing that sort of really sort of got me going when we were talking about it. And then I sort of learned of the story, the, the victim blaming you know, the the rape the um, or alleged rape mm. and the topic of consent. Because there's this amazing bit in it, which I was reading, it just sent shivers down my spine because it was at the same time as we had um, Sarah Everard has just gone missing and we were putting together the exhibition and I went into a pub and there was, you know, those signs in the toilet saying just, you know, even within a relationship, you need consent and, you know, just, and I thought these messages are still having to be hammered home today. And then you read this section in Tess and Alec is basically saying, I didn't realise you didn't want me to do that. And she says, when a woman says no, they mean no. It gives me goosebumps. You know, this was the last century. 125 years later or whatever, and we're still saying exactly the same thing. Extraordinary. And as, as we've done the spoiler alert anyway, we'll carry on because, you know, after she kills Alec and um, she ends up being arrested, getting arrested, doesn't she? Yes. And um, she's taken off to prison mm. and she's executed. Yes. Um, so it is a very sad ending. And, and yes, the sort of story is rather depressing. But, you know, for me, it's just utterly fascinating as, as someone who works in the prison system mm. with women in prison and just how modern this story is actually. I mean, sort of by the execution. But that's really the only bit that is of a sort of previous time. The way that execution was viewed in this period and the way that we view putting people in prison today, both of them, it's this idea of just getting that person out of sight, out of mind, out of society. And so even though we don't end someone's life by doing it now, it's still that same approach of just, we want to just forget that is happening and put it away. So another case recently where a woman has been um, exonerated for having killed her husband because of being... And Sally Challen? Yes. And Sally Challen's case, I think, was... It, it seems so resonant with um, Tessa's case of that idea of being in a relationship where abuse is occurring and where that is then seen to be... Uh, you know, that, that is the reason why this crime is committed, not because the woman is in some way doing it in cold blood. Exactly. And, and for me, I talk about this all the time with people, which is... Someone might have committed a violent act like murder, which is obviously terrible. We can't go around taking other people's lives. However, it helps us to understand why it happened because of the circumstances around it. But it doesn't make that woman a risk mm -hmm. to other people. And so when I'm working sort of day in, day out on issues to do with women in prison, I'm always mm -hmm. saying, look, those nonviolent women that are in prison maybe for um, a dangerous act that they committed, it does not make them a risk to society. Yeah. So for me, they should not be in prison because they are not a danger to anyone on the outside, which might sound crazy to people. But, you know, we have to think about risk. Well, and, and I think also about that way that you can support people before it comes to that, that head, because I think the case that you get with Tess is that... Angel Clare, who is at the very beginning seen as the, the supportive, good 
character who she falls in love with, who she eventually marries. Um, but he doesn't support her, even though she's at risk and in this very, very vulnerable situation with this other character, Alec. And through him not supporting her at that point because he blames her for what has happened, that puts her even more into this riskier and riskier situation. I think that's another thing that I, I just find horrible is the idea of if someone's not supported at that point when they're asking for that help then that potentially pushes them into being even more vulnerable yeah you know and again um the thing we talk about today and that question that people always ask well why didn't she leave Mm. and when you look at tess and the predicament that she's in with alec a coercively controlling a sort of violent Mm. predatory unsavory character to to put it mildly well where's she gonna go Mm. Where can she go to be safe? And this is, again, is something I'm constantly saying to people over and over again. It's like women who are poor and don't have their own financial means, where do they go and how do they go somewhere? I mean, it's just... No, absolutely. And, and the fact is that, you know, Alec does repeatedly find her no matter where she is. There's that sense that he will, he will keep on looking for her. She can't just get up disappear and then you know he never finds her again and I think that's another thing that I've you know, heard in some recent cases about this you know horrific case of a woman who was constantly trying to move to get away from someone who was who was abusing her and and just that sense of at what point do you kind of run out of options the other bit that really moved me about this story which is why I was like we've got to do a podcast <laughs> about this and <laughs> people on my team going what's this got to do with the prison system and justice and I was like you'll you'll see um downstairs because we are recording this in a room upstairs in the museum downstairs in the amazing exhibition there's three letters Mm. that were written to hardy about the story of tess can you talk about those letters yes we've had this amazing project recently that has digitized a hundred of hardy's letters which means that you can now search for any term within those letters just at the you know through a database And so when I was searching for letters on Tess, I came up with these, not one, not two, but three letters from women in their 20s who had written to Hardy saying, reading your your book, Tess of the D'Ubervilles, it was the first time I'd seen my experiences represented on an international stage. And just saying about how important that book was to them, seeing themselves reflected in it and seeing this horrific, you know, they, they don't go into specifics, they just say my experience was very like hers, but this horrific experience that Tess has. And they say, you know, I've been through that, I've lived that. And for me to see that this book had, you know, no matter what you think of Thomas Hardy's personal life, the way that this book has had such an impact on these three women. And they weren't even clustered together. One was in The Hague, one was... Uh, writing from South Kensington, but had actually been, um, she lived in South Wales, and the other one was in New York. And and so just that sense of how powerful it can be to hear your story heard by someone and hear it put forward in front of people and kind of in some ways legitimised in that way. Which is exactly like the Me Too movement. Exactly. And it's another sort of really strange sort of parallel um, with sort of the debates that we're having today and, mm. you know when one woman came out in the Me Too movement and then another and another and that's sort of an absolute snowball effect. And obviously it can happen so quickly um, with social media. You know, back then they were all writing letters, weren't they? So it was, it was less instant, but how amazing. Yeah, that sense of when you, you know you're not alone, that gives you that strength to speak out against what you are experiencing and to know that it's not a norm. I think that's so important and that's one of the things that Tess did at this point, which was really kind of crucial to these women at the turn of the century. Mm. 
And um, Hardy also witnessed an execution of a woman, didn't he, sort of earlier on in his life? Or when was that? And Yes, I, I, f- I feel like we're kind of always telling the story back to front, that this is, this is the amazing thing about Tesla D'Abervilles, is that it's based on this true story of Martha Brown, who was hanged in 1856, and Hardy was only 16 years old. And so he walked into Dorchester, and he didn't witness her hanging, that he witnessed her hanged body because they had to leave um, the body to hang. And it it just struck him so deeply, the tragedy of this woman's life. She'd been a milkmaid in Marshall Vale and then she'd married a man, been very happily married to him, um, but he was older than her, he passed away. She got married again to a younger man and he would come home and beat her. And one night at three o'clock in the morning was beating her with a whip and she grabbed a frying pan from behind her and hit him in self-defense but managed to kill him in one go and she was taken to the local shire hall court um, in Dorchester and she was tried and found guilty and the way that they talk about the trial at the time in the press is horrendous because she they're saying she's not crying so of course she's guilty and you know and as a woman she should be shown more kind of I don't know feminine charm and they and still say that today she's not showing enough emotion so look at her she's even worse than if a man wasn't crying yeah. and it's just horrendous this kind of gender imbalance about the way they're talking about her and and the way that that's then you're thinking that's affecting the jury that's affecting the emotions of the jury and this idea exactly what hardy's pushing against with this title as a pure woman but this idea that she's somehow impure and this one act has defined her and no matter how many character references she had from her past life none of that overturned this one act and the fact that she was suffering from domestic violence didn't come yeah. into it at all and actually you know when we look at sort of domestic violence and and how recently something like coercive control has come in. You know, we're only really, in a legal sense, waking up to all of this and, and have only been waking up to it in the last sort of 10, 20 years, really. Yeah. So there well, was no hope back then, but it's still pretty sketchy now. And and so Hardy takes... He, he's 16 when that happens. He doesn't write Tessa Durbervilles until 1891. So he's in his 50s by this point, And that's how long it's taken him to need to get the reputation that he can take on this subject. And even then, when it was received, he, yeah, there were, one of the things that struck me was a woman writing to him saying, I have to sit my dinner party so that people who agree with Tess or don't agree with Tess aren't sat next to each other. The whole of society was talking about it and the whole of society was divided about it. And I think, you know, it's crazy to think that big conversation happened in 1891. And like you say, it's not until about the last 10 years or so that we're really having that conversation and, and that things seem to be changing for the better. But... Um, but even so, that, that kind of sense of how little has changed in 130 years. And so I guess the other people in the sort of anti-Tess camp, would they be saying things like, well, she was just after riches. She wanted to bag a rich man. She got a rich man. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the main thing was this idea of her being kind of somehow flawed. And, and so right from that very point, her being flawed. And so therefore you shouldn't side with her. You know, that she couldn't be someone you could empathise with. And... And she's kind of placed herself outside of, uh, you know, the human law, the human boundaries. So therefore, she, you know, she's game for anything. Mm. That's interesting. I mean, how how did people think she was flawed? Because she always came across to me as a sort of very caring, hardworking, mm. 
resilient mm. woman. I completely agree with you. And I can't now look at this and say, how did anyone think she used to blame? I, I don't know how much of it's a case of, as we still have happens in the media, someone glosses something and someone decides to judge it on the gloss rather than actually reading it for themselves. Because um, obviously, you know, Tess is fairly long novel. And I do wonder how many people just went, well, I'm against that kind of thing. But I, you know, you see it happen in the press now. It just takes one person to report something, glossing it over, and everyone jumps on the clickbait and says, oh, I, I completely side with them. I, I disagree with what is being represented here. Um, so I think it's also, you know, a really interesting thing about, you know, what we're saying now about misinformation and reading a, a story thoroughly and getting different points of view on it and properly doing your research before you start jumping Um, up and down and shouting your opinion out to the rest of the world. It would be an interesting debate. How long is the exhibition going to be here for? The exhibition is here until the 30th of October this year. Okay. Um, And do you do any work with schools? Because, I mean, obviously, age-appropriate side of life. But it would be so interesting to have sixth formers or university students, you know, sort of in one camp for TESS and then the anti-TESS camp. It would be really fascinating to see. Unfortunately, because we're in the summer holidays now, we're not going to be able to get... (laughs) Not too much student engagement at the minute. But no, it's something that um, another member of staff has been talking about, about those letters just being such an amazing way of empathising with these these characters and with Tess. And and it's something that we've done a bit of work with because we worked with Arts University Bournemouth students to create installations about... um, the different novels that Hardy's known best known for and it was really interesting some of the feedback we had on almost who was the real villain in Tesla D'Abbeville's is it Alec who you know effectively you know rapes her or whatever happens in that wood in that scene but um she doesn't seem to have consented to and or is it actually Angel who doesn't act as an advocate who should be her ally in the situation and and so actually is he the worst traitor because he leaves her in this vulnerable situation where she then is given no choice but to basically put herself back in the hands of her abuser Mm. and it was really interesting seeing that um the reactions that came to that of some people saying well actually you know Alec was bad but Angel almost is the greater traitor he really betrayed her because he was meant to love her and then of course you've got the parents Tessa's parents and family Oh, that's, and that's a horrendous one as well, because they're, they're effectively just handing her over and she comes back and says, why didn't you tell me about these things? These, you know, and, and I, I can't remember the exact words, but it's along the lines of, you know, women, you know, women who are well read can read these things in novels and can be warned against them. But I don't read novels. I only had you to tell me and you just handed me over. And I think that's another interesting thing that Hardy is almost there saying, Tess is the book to, for people to read to know what to guard against. And of course, you know, things have come so far in the last hundred years about women just being made more aware of how to equip themselves in these situations. But I think it's interesting because the conversation has now turned from how do you equip yourself in the situation to saying you shouldn't have to equip yourself in the situation. Yeah. What about educating boys and men about <laughs> consent? Well, and because it's um, the number of my friends who won't go jogging after dark and won't walk home after dark. And, and it's just horrendous because we shouldn't be sitting in our homes kind of cowering in fear of something happening. And the same with Tess. She shouldn't have been in that situation just because she's walking home from a party in the dark. 
to have to think about not putting herself in harm's way. It should be every woman's right to just be able to walk wherever you need to go or want to go at any time of day without fear of, of putting yourself in danger. Exactly. I, I like to think it is changing and will continue to change, but I think it needs, you know, it needs more people like Thomas Hardy to be writing these things to get people to really, truly empathise and, and to really internalise those messages. Um, and to get that complete societal shift, which at the moment it feels like it's still kind of two camps rather than being a majority minority. What's the next step of the project? Um, evaluating it all. Right. <laughs> so, so we're going to, um, so, to look at questions like this, you know, what impact has it made? And um, you know, like I was saying about the students, it was really interesting getting the student evaluation back and seeing what they'd thought of Hardy because many of them hadn't been exposed to Hardy at all and yeah. they had their own preconceptions and seeing how that's gonna, that's all kind of going to be processed. Um, and it's been really nice actually because the Arts University of Bournemouth have just approached me in the last few weeks saying, could I give a lecture on tests as part of their next year's cohort? So it's not going to go into the exhibition, it's, it's going off on its own it's kind of creating its own life so you're telling the next cohort about Tess and then them working out a way to empathize with those characters and to bring those characters to life through the performance design and costume department they've got there um so I'm hoping that will kind of elicit even more of these conversations going forward Mm, so Tess will live on yeah how fascinating that you know this subject has sort of come to me from completely left field I mean obviously it's my uh, my husband Dan Snow, who's a historian, who's like, you're treading into my patch. What are you doing, doing a podcast in a museum? <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much. It's been really fascinating learning more about Thomas Hardy um, and how his life and work and the character of Tess has sort of collided rather um, sort of strangely and fortuitously with with my work. But I've just been round the exhibition, which is fantastic. Couldn't recommend it highly enough. And you said it's going to be here till the 30th of October. Yes. Yeah. No, it's been absolutely lovely having you and I really enjoyed making the podcast. And it's been such a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.